Okay, everybody, welcome to episode one of uh, our From the Earth to the Moon podcast. Uh, this is Doug. Um, my uh, colleague here is Peter. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. Um, and we are going to be discussing the 12 part 1998 HBO uh, miniseries From the Earth to the Moon. Uh, why are we doing a twenty-year-old miniseries? Um, because there are, I think, there aren't too many uh, miniseries about uh, about Apollo or about space well, in general. Yeah, and I think that this, you know, twenty years later, this really stands out as the most comprehensive and serious and definitive attempt to really discuss and portray the Apollo program. I mean, eleven of the twelve episodes really deal with the Apollo program directly. Um, and I, you know, I, I didn't have HBO when this came out. I, um, I, uh, didn't have cable when this came out, but I knew about it and I bought it on VHS and I, I just fell in love with it and it's, it's never been too far from my mind. Uh, so I just thought it'd be great for us to do as a standalone podcast. For those of you who don't know, uh, Peter and I are also the hosts of Popcorn Drink Combo, a movie podcast. Yeah. And you'll probably, if you're listening to this, you'll probably like that. FYI. Um, so there's 12 episodes. Uh, this is really a, a, a Tom Hanks, uh, Brian Grazier, uh, Ron Howard production, Ron Howard, right? Production uh, done through HBO and really the A-list treatment for this Um you know, there's a there's a big budget. There's a large cast. We'll go through some of the key cast people in every episode, uh, and we're going to do um, one episode per episode of the show. So we'll have twelve episodes, and that will conclude our From the Earth to the Moon podcast. Um, should we get? Should we just jump right in? Yeah, I mean, a couple of facts um, about just why the series was made. I mean, Andrew Chaikin wrote the book. It's the same name. Uh, well, actually, it's Man on the Moon, I think, wasn't it? Right. And, it's um, a Man on the Moon. And uh, but basically, the the series parallels um, his book, um, and um, it really got made because Tom Hanks and Ron Howard were really interested, and they had, especially Tom Hanks, you know, had the star power to to produce this. And he, right. his interest was, I'm sure he had interest previously, but his interest was piqued by uh, making Apollo 13. Right. With Ron Howard. With Ron and Howard. Brian Grazier. Right. So I think that this is an expansion of, of um, the renewed interest in Apollo and NASA that came at that time when that movie came out. That movie was a big hit. And I think that enough time had passed that maybe... There was a little bit of a generational shift, and um, this sort of scratched that itch for people to know more about it. And even though there's 12 episodes, it aired over six weeks. So I believe it was on Sunday nights, they would show two episodes back to back. So each week, uh, they would show two episodes. So the whole thing was done in just six weeks. And I don't know if they ever re showed it. No, they probably re ran it. You know, at the, yeah, know. the time, not not in prime time, though, they probably, you know, they reran stuff in the afternoons. Yeah. But um, anyway, this is episode one, which is probably the which is the only one that is it's the setup episode, basically. 
Right. So the episode one, Can We Do This, directed by Tom Hanks and written by Steve Katz, uh, aired originally April 5th, 1998. Um, and this is this is essentially their encapsulation of Mercury and Gemini, just to sort of tee everything up and set the stage for the Apollo program. So let's let's go through it just sort of scene by scene. Um we begin uh, with really the dawn of the space age, right? The opening is Gagarin's launch, Yuri Gagarin's launch of Vostok 1, shown in uh, essentially a little bit of stock footage. Right. Um, and then we are introduced to our uh, our stand-in for Walter Cronkite, uh, Emmett Seaborn, who's sort of our, our sort of, uh, I guess he represents all of the news media writ large right. uh, throughout the entire show. And he's played by Lane Smith. And I guess they were looking for somebody who kind of was suggestive of Cronkite without actually being Cronkite. Yeah, you'd recognize Lane Smith if you don't know the name, because he's been a character actor in a lot of things. So, um, yeah, you know, the, basically this episode, as you'll see when we hit the points now, is kind of like the Cliff's Notes of what lead up to the Apollo program itself. And they really, really, the interesting thing to me is, you know, what did they choose to show? You know, and these are and, the right, things. And what did they choose to skip? Right. Because, you know, obviously it's really a tight, condensed cliff notes of what leads up. So they, you know, they choose to show essentially the under um, underlying political situation in the cold war which leads to which provides all of the thrust for for the apollo program because of competition with the russians and the soviet threat and the fact that the soviets had such a jump on um rocket technology and lifting capacity and got people into orbit sooner spacewalked sooner you know before that had satellite sputnik sooner and this caused a tremendous amount of paranoia and fear and panic just yeah outright panic as as one quote victory uh for them and loss for the united states um moved to the to the next one you know by the third time you know by the time they were uh they they first they got into space they orbited then they spacewalked. Right. I mean, it just got worse and worse till it till it really became panic, and you know that was all of the thrust. So that's the background, and then they hit several. And the unspoken things. fear is that nuclear bombs would be dropped on the U.S. I mean, that sort of while this was a, a race for sort of preeminence in the national or international sphere and, and prestige and victory, yeah. the underlying fear was that. Uh, the Soviets could launch a military station that could drop nuclear weapons, which was, in fact, something that uh, Sergei Korolev, the the Soviet uh, chief designer, was, in fact, working on. And that was, in fact, part of their plan. So it wasn't completely off base to worry about that. Quote, the high ground of space. Like, however, like, you know, like rocks drop from a highway overpass. However, you know, they already everybody already had intercom continental ballistic missiles um yeah, i mean it was <sighs> yeah although again i i mean you know this is you know we're, we're starting in 1961 um and you know icbms are really primitive like gagarin has launched aboard a soviet r7 icbm right you know which didn't have you know which didn't have the range of a modern missile you know they, they could they could they could hit western europe with it uh, but, you know, they couldn't hit the U.S. at that time with a missile, I don't believe. 
I don't know. It didn't take long from that point. Um, well, remember too. I mean, we, you know, I mean, the when Mercury starts, we basically have the redstone, which is essentially a V two. I mean, the the guts of the redstone are almost identical to the guts of the V two. Uh, so I think I think that ICBMs are still pretty primitive here, right? Um, so we we then transition uh, to a meeting that is, I assume, taking place at the White House. Uh, where Jerome Wiesner, the president's science advisor, played by none other than uh, Al Franken, good lord, um, meets with uh, Dan Luria, the father when he on was still an actor. Uh, the Wonder Years, right, playing Jim Webb, and then uh, Hugh Dryden is also supposed to be present at the meeting, and uh, it's it's the meeting and the scene sort of details them deciding or responding to the president's challenge um, that. You know, what can they do? Can they do something spectacular in space? And the recognition, like you were saying, that the Soviets were very far ahead in terms of heavy lifting capacity. But the recognition was that if given enough time, we could catch up and surpass them. Uh, Hence, the goal wasn't an immediate splash. It was uh, something bigger down the road. Right. Right. The, the The way to beat them that they made clear was to outfight them technologically and with a long-term plan and beat them in the end, essentially, even though the immediate victories would go to them in terms of capacity to do, um, to put people in space, put large amounts of mass of weight yeah, and, in space. You know, and first woman, first two people in space, like, right. you know, that's all basically the same trick over and over and over. Right. Using essentially the same boosters pretty much over and over. Just but, refining you know, it's funny capacity. Both the Soviets and the U.S. knew... Like they've declassified documents and like the Soviets were very aware that they would probably lose the space race because they knew they couldn't match the long term industrial output of the US. They they I think like the, the Americans didn't realize like when Gagarin went up, they really did not realize how far ahead the Soviets were, but the Soviets themselves recognized it couldn't last. Right. Um, and then uh, the meeting ends uh, with um, Jim Webb uh, assuring the White House that uh, they'll have a man up on, I believe he says, the 2nd of May. And then we cut to the 5th of May, uh, which is really sort of the first spectacular sequence of the entire series of uh, uh, Alan Shepard. Shepard's Mercury flight. Right. Um and uh, Al Shepard is played by none other than uh, Ted Levine, uh, Buffalo Bill from it, The Silence of the Lambs. It puts the capsule into suborbit. <laughs> <laughs> or it gets the hose again. Um, and this, so I have to say that I love this scene. And I like this scene for a couple of reasons. Is it, it shows the Mercury launch in a way that we haven't seen. You know, we've seen Mercury launch in the context of... The right stuff. Um, And, you know, there's plenty of newsreel footage. There's no uh, newsreel footage really used in the launch sequence, which looks to me like a like it's mostly model work with a little bit of CGI thrown on it. And they give you a sense of the booster, uh, like the Redstone booster. Like the booster looks primitive and simple, and they show the booster separating and tumbling away. Yeah. uh, Which, you know, I've never seen that portrayed in a, a movie or a television show before. And uh, some of the Mercury astronauts could describe, like, looking back and seeing the booster tumble away. So I thought it was novel uh, that they did that, and it looked great. And again, I'm a big fan of practical effects. I like the fact uh, that they use models. Um, 
and uh, there's some good model work when they're up in space, and then when when Shepard comes down, they show his drogue chute and his main chute uh, release. They show that the, the nose of the Mercury capsule come off and the chutes come out, which again, you know, you've read about it and you've seen diagrams of it, but to see it portrayed that way, you know, with a really, really high high definition model like that, I, I just, I love it. Like, I love that scene of the chute deploying. You know, what I thought was great was that um, they they give you a really good sense of how short the entire flight was. And right. even though obviously they're not going to go second by second, right? But they they still, they condense it a little bit, obviously, for brevity. But you really, the whole thing is so fast, um, which it was. And that serves as kind of a, a baseline to show how far they're going to go. Um, you know, they're, they're behind the Russians already. That is, that's established. But... They're just starting from this. This is like this, you know, little tiny little bump. And, yeah, it's like a nothing. And they're going to build a giant mountain, you know, instead of this, this little tiny anthill. And, um, and, and it's, it's really, it, it pales in comparison to the, the Soviet flight. Like, you know, Gagarin orbited once, but it's very impressive that the first Soviet manned flight was orbital. Right. Um, and we had to do not one, but two suborbital right. flights with Shepard and then subsequently with Grissom. Right. Um, a very nice touch, I think, in this scene is that they show the Mercury control room, which, um, uh, you it's know, in that's... Florida. It's in Right, exactly. And, you know, it's only used for the Mercury flights. And you can actually go to it. I've actually been in Mercury control. It's uh, at least last time I was there, it's part of the tour at, at Kennedy Space Center. Um, and I don't know if they filmed that in the actual Mercury control. I suspect they didn't, but... Nonetheless, I thought it was good that they went to the trouble of showing the original uh, Mercury control room. Nick Searcy, uh, we meet for the first time playing Deke Slayton, and Steve uh, Root uh, appears as Chris Kraft, uh, the original flight uh, director, sort of before he handed off the reign to um, Gene Kranz, uh, Glenn Lunny, and others. Uh, you may recognize, you, you're a big fan of Office Space, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. He's, he's got a big part uh, an office space. He's the guy that they keep taking away everything from his office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's good to see. I like Ted Levine as an actor. He, I've seen him on Monk a bunch of times. Uh, I I think that my favorite performance of his is, is the way he does Shepard throughout this. And it's sort of good to see him not play a villain. I mean, he's playing a stern guy, but he's not playing a villain. Right. Um. And then we shift uh, to essentially a, a long exposition scene uh, where NASA administrators are talking to a large group of engineers and then using an overhead projector uh, for people listening who are under the age of 30. Overhead projectors used to be how information was conveyed to large groups of people before PowerPoint. Yeah. Um, if, if it wasn't a blackboard, it was it was a marker <laughs> on a clear piece of plastic that was projected. A non, transparent. Yes. Non-digitally, I might add. Projected <laughs> just with a, 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 light fresnel, a fresnel lens and then an overhead lens and a, and a light bulb that got hot. It wasn't an um, LED. But this scene, you know, for, for viewers who are not space fanatics, this scene is really important because it lays out sort of the mechanics of how they get to the moon, right? And, they, and they're and they introducing the viewer to terms, right? They've got to reach orbit. 
They have to do spacewalks or extravehicular activities, EVAs. They have to do rendezvous and docking, and they have to have long-duration spaceflight and landing. Right. Um, and the, the drawings in the background show Gemini spacecraft as if to imply that they're already working on this stuff. Right. This is the cliff notes within the cliff notes. So this is the cliff notes of how to get to the moon within the cliff notes of the setup for the Apollo program, which is the episode. So they this whole episode is basically about them setting things up. And then from this point on, there is no further Mercury program shown. I mean, right. Shepard's flight is the only one we ever see. And, and my suspicion is that was a conscious decision on the part of the filmmakers because the right stuff you know, was widely available and covers Mercury in a ton of detail. But that's it. They yeah. just They mentioned John on. Glenn. You know, they mentioned Glenn retires and they mentioned how he has political aspirations. And everybody kind of, they just assume everybody knows who John Glenn is, especially people watching this. So, um, you know, yeah, they, they, it's not, it's left out of the, out of the outline. Right, and then we're done with it. We never, we never see them again. And then we immediately jump to uh, the new nine, right? The second group of astronauts to follow the Mercury Seven, uh, meeting at the, uh, I think it's the Rice Hotel in Houston, um, yeah. uh, all checking in under the name of Max Peck, who I believe was actually the hotel manager. I think that that's where that uh, comes from, and these are really the men who will form the core of the Gemini and Apollo astronaut groups. And we get to meet um, almost all of them for just a few seconds to get us used to their names and their faces. Did you recognize, by the way, the guy they had playing uh, Pete Conrad? No, I can't remember. That is a, a favor that Tom Hanks did. That's Peter Scolari, who was his co-star in Bosom Buddies. Oh, wow. That's funny. Yeah. Um, there is acknowledgement of uh, Deke Slayton being grounded with his AFib, which was interesting. Yeah. Um, and then they explain the, the system whereby uh, the astronauts have a rotation where they back up a mission and then uh, two to three missions later, they become a prime crew. So if you were asked to back up a mission, it was wink, wink that you were going to be asked to fly uh, in a subsequent mission down the road. And they explain um, that there's going to be some some flex or change involved in the order of um, the flight order because they're going to have to build on these stages to perform tests and learn how to do things that were just outlined, you know, to get to the moon. Somebody's going to be first. So in this scene and then in one of the yeah, next scenes coming up. There's a scene up, right at the end. Right, that they basically explain um how it's going to work and it provides for some drama from from their viewpoint because they never know are they going to be the first guy are they are they actually going to go to the moon um you know what's what's going to be and i think that probably in hindsight after neil armstrong's degree of fame was was so so extremely uh probably really unlike any other astronaut i guess um he it it in, in hindsight, it makes it sort of their jockeying and aspirations to be the first one probably even more sharp. And I think that that scene at the hotel, it sets up that they are, they're all sort of frenemies, you yeah. know, like they're, they're all, 
they're for the great cause and they're pulling for their country, but they really want to go and they really want to go ahead of the other guy. Yeah. Um, so this, and it's done very subtly, but it does sort of set that up. But again, these are also hyper aggressive military pilots. Right. They've been the same way probably when they were test pilots. They want to, they don't, you know, they want to fly whatever the most desirable thing to test is. They don't want to fly, you know, the next, um, you know, Navy SEAL hovercraft. <laughs> right. So we then transition to acknowledgement of the Kennedy assassination. Uh, um, Cape Canaveral is renamed Cape Kennedy and the JFK Space Center. And then we immediately cut from that, again, sort of setting the stage of how far behind we are. Like we have now tragedy of Kennedy's loss. And then they immediately cut to Voshkod 2, where we see Alexei Leonov uh, doing the first human spacewalk. Uh, again, emphasizing... Uh, the gap between our program and theirs. Are there any good pictures of, you know, like every time you see any kind of Soviet space images, you know, it, it's like watching it, you know, a 1917 world war one uh, movie, <laughs> you know, like and um, the ones that we have, you know, like there are these super high res Hasselblad pictures of Ed white floating around, right. You know, Gemini four. And then, um, which is next, right? And then, but you know, like freaking uh, poor Alexei Leonov. You know, he looks. It looks like uh, really. It looks like Charlie Chaplin's gonna float by next to him. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because on uh, I was just watching on Netflix today. I was watching a documentary about the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Um, and there is a, quite a bit of footage that looks very, very good. I think a lot of it just wasn't available in the West or what, Probably. or, you know, or what, what they had was copied and copied and copied. And you're looking at a degraded third or fourth generation film copy, but the, but the, the Soviets did film just about everything. So there's actually a lot of really high res stuff and that probably, you know, wasn't, or was just becoming available about this time. Well, they should have done a better um, job because, you know, it would have been even more impressive. <laughs> yeah. So then we cut to Steve Zahn uh, playing Elliot C., uh, who's holding, by the way, the Mercury astronaut version of G.I. Joe, which I have on my shelf about three feet from me. Um, and he's uh, sort of trying. Um, uh, oh, sorry, he's talking to a group of school kids and he shows a Woody Woodpecker cartoon uh, explaining uh, the maneuvers required to land on the moon. So I, I tried to find this cartoon and there's actually several Woody Woodpecker in space cartoons, but the actual cartoon they show, I cannot find. And other people online have commented as well that they were unable to find it, but it looks like a period cartoon. Yeah. Um, Elliot C., who uh, we will come back to later in the episode, but not in a good way. Um, and then we get to, finally, we get to Gemini 4. Uh, did you know, by the way, that, this is interesting, the word is Gemini, uh, mm -hmm. pronounced like eye and eyeball. And the astronauts took to pronouncing it Gemini, most notably Gus Grissom, publicly. And it actually started a debate at the time, like, is it Gemini or is it Gemini? And uh, the public affairs officer at NASA came forward and said the program is officially called Gemini, like me, K-N-E-E. -E. Uh, and they just they went with this aberrant pronunciation that everybody says forever, which is kind of interesting. Oh, you know, one thing they actually they showed another lecture, um, I guess, was it by Ed White? I forget. 
uh, he goes to like, he's in Louisiana or something. It's Roger Chaffee. Oh, it's Chaffee. Right, right. And, and the interesting thing about that is he shows, so he, he starts talking to them. He realizes they're bored and you can tell that he's done this 50 times. He puts on the Woody Woodpecker cartoon and everybody's happy. I love it. And these are all like, you know, grown adults eating dinner to come see an astronaut talk and it really portrays um the general general public is sort of a little bit of a rough light you know like they're too dumb really to kind of comprehend anything that's going on and they're they're coarse and crass right they're really awful and and they uh and they yet they just you know lap up this cartoon the same way that those five-year-olds did probably yeah. even more with more gusto than the five-year-olds <laughs> Uh, but so that scene comes right after where we at next. So we're up to now we finally get to see we see uh, Jim McDivitt and Ed White's Gemini 4 flight, which is really notable for first U.S. spacewalk. Um, and it looks like it looks like it's a full sized uh, model prop of the Gemini capsule. Um, and it, it looks it looks great. Uh, I, I thought that this scene was really good. There's some really interesting in-helmet shots. Like the camera is physically inside Ed White's helmet, and you sort of see on one half of the screen his face. The screen is then split by his visor, and you can see what he's seeing outside. And there's a couple of those in-helmet shots that I think look great. And we are introduced for the first time. Now we, we see the MOCA, right, the Mission Operations Control Room in Houston, right, or Mission Control, as we will see throughout the rest of the series, implying that they're no longer using the Mercury uh, control room and and they they work hard to get the details right you know mcdivitt stays in his seat they show his glove lost you can see the you can see that he loses a glove in a bunch of the photos yeah um, and you know they take pains to recreate the loss of his glove which i thought was really neat yeah there was clearly that this whole series is made by enthusiasts that's, uh, that's really is our capcom and you know right? that's actually probably the the thing that makes it really unusual and probably why we're podcasting about it is because there are not that many things that are really truly made top to bottom entirely by enthusiasts. Right. And then they care, like you're saying, like they really care and it shows. Yep. Um, interesting that they, um, they go from this sequence, which is done with a sort of flair of the score to sort of emphasize like this is maybe not our, our first first in space, but it's our first big, it's our first big standout event, right? Now you get the sense that we are starting. This is a We're majesty. starting to catch up. There's a certain majesty to it. You know, I think they, they show, you know, Ed White um, being really kind of blown away and more or less speechless at how it's beautiful and, the, and where what he's accomplished, what they've accomplished. And so, and the pride in mission control, like they right. acknowledge that he's out longer than Leonov. Yeah, it slows down. Like the the show just it slows down just a little, just sort of to linger on to to get the point of the feeling across. Um, they they go from this right that's, to the chaffy breakfast now, that's, where that's he the shows talk. the Woody Woodpecker cartoon right. to the adults. But what's interesting in that scene is there is. Very, very brief acknowledgement. And I was actually, I remember when I watched this for the first time, surprised that there wasn't more time given to it. They acknowledge that Gemini 6 and Gemini 7 have had their rendezvous. Um, 
which is, you know, that's an, a whole other story that they just decided not to do. So Gemini 6 didn't launch on time because they had a, a shutdown on the pad. Gemini 7 went up for two weeks, and then they very quickly threw Gemini 6 up. So actually, Gemini 7 launches before Gemini 6, right? 7 is Borman and Lovell. Uh, 6 is, um, I have to look it up. 6 is, um, so yeah, sorry, 7 is... Uh, Shraw and Stafford, and they come up just for basically a day, and they have a rendezvous uh, with um, Borman and Lovell. And there's just brief mention of that, and it's a really interesting story, and it's got amazing uh, visuals. You know, they flew just within a few feet of each other, but right. they just dropped the whole thing. And then they go right from that to uh, Emmett Seaborn telling us that Elliot C. and Charlie Bassett uh, have died. Right. Um, they and they were flying, right. They were flying a T 38 to St. Louis um, to the plant where the, the Gemini capsule was being built. They actually hit the actual building where their spacecraft was being built. Right. It was like a little visibility was down. It was just a, you know, they were flying a T 38 train. It was just a, a, a flying accident, basically. Yeah, right. And then right behind them um, were uh, Gene Cernan, uh, flying in another T-38. Gene Cernan was in one, it was their backup crew. Hmm. Um, uh, it was, a, it was. I'm trying to remember who their backup crew was. I know one was Cernan. And then they, they Stafford and Cernan, that's right. Stafford and Cernan were their backup crew. And they orbited the field one more time and came in. And they did not know that C and Bassett had died. So when they... They just knew the weather was bad. They lost track of them. And when they landed, they were told that they were dead. And if there's there's unbelievable uh, film and footage of that accident, if you look at it online. I mean, the T-38 is almost intact. It basically landed in a parking lot. And there's lots of good video of the crash site right afterward that's very, very clear. And them sort of loading the T-38 and putting it on the back of a flatbed truck to haul it off. And I, I think that this is also to sort of convey to us that, you know, it's not just dangerous flying in space, right? These guys are doing all sorts of dangerous stuff all the time. And even something as routine as a trip to St. Louis from Houston, right, to go to the McDonald plant, uh, building 101, by the way, um, you know, was enough to get you killed. Right. And a lot of people felt that C and Bassett were among the two most promising members of their class, uh, neither of whom ever made it to space. Right. Um, and then we cut straight from this to Gemini 8, right, which we've uh, seen and talked about in our other podcast, Popcorn Drink Combo, in the context of First Man, the Armstrong uh, biopic. Uh, and this is a very different retelling. Yeah, this is a little bit less dramatic, huh? Well, I, I mean, it's 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 a very different telling because uh, in First Man, uh, it, it portrays Armstrong as very, very icy and not particularly nice to Dave Scott and certainly not very collegial, whereas this portrays them much more as partners. Um, and I read some of the transcript of the flight, and it, it was hard to tell from that. Um, but, you know, they're... So the, the, the scene details them, they're docked to the Agena target vehicle, and then uh, one of the, the thrusters on the Gemini starts to fire just on its own, and it sends the two of them into a very, very rapid roll, 
uh, and they make the mistake of undocking, uh, thinking that the problem is with the Agena, but it's with them. And when they undock, they go from a bad situation essentially to a complete crisis. Yeah. I mean, it was a reasonable assumption because it started pretty soon after they docked. Right. And again, you know, they didn't know, right? It's right. easy for us sitting in our couches, right, eating Doritos to know that they're doing the wrong thing, but they didn't know. And remember, too, and they, they make this point in the show that they this happens when they are out of communication, right? right. They're, they're actually, they're in between um, tracking stations. And then when they finally are able to reestablish uh, contact with CSQ, which is Coastal Century Quebec, the ship, um, they're already, you know, they're already deep, deep into the crisis and they're, they're rolling so fast that they're threatening to black out. Right. Um, and, you know, First Man shows this just like everything else in that movie from the first person perspective. Here you get this sort of omniscient view. You see outside uh, the spacecraft and you know what's happening and you get to see it. You see that it's them and not the Agena. You see them tumble away when they separate from the Agena. I don't know. I actually... I think that this is almost a more effective way to portray it. It's a little bit more followable for the viewer. Yeah, it is more followable. But the other one, it's so viscerally effective, you know, in the sense that it really gives you a feeling that physically it was very difficult for them because the G forces. Right, that you're in the capsule with them. Right, right. And it was, and, and how incredibly dangerous it was here they kind of have to just reference they they cut to the the flight surgeon who says you know they, they spin too far they could black out and again usually in these sorts of movies and shows the flight surgeon is portrayed as the antagonist right or sort of like a jerk um right. and there's a little bit of that there's a lot of that in the right stuff there's a little bit of that in apollo 13 um and here, you know, like it's portrayed very matter of fact, like the flight surgeon points out something that they no one else in the room has realized that they are in genuine danger of blacking out. Right. Um, so I was I thought that was interesting that it was, you know, he wasn't portrayed in a bad way. Right. Um, and then we see them uh, use the RCS, the reaction control system to, to stop it, which triggers an auto abort of the flight. There's Chris Kraft is shown again. Um and then they uh, splash down in the South China Sea. And then the scene ends semi-humorously with the two of them basically vomiting. Yeah, because they're floating around because they were kind of far from recovery ships. So they they're, they sat there uh, floating around for a while getting seasick. Which is, again, a very different way to portray it, right? They, you know, they almost died. And yeah. they, they, they sort of leave them laughing a little bit. But the reality is they almost died. And that, you know, if if... If Armstrong had not been able to get control, they almost certainly would have died. Right. Right. And it, that that's also, I mean, I think one of the reasons they show this was because they're setting up um, Armstrong to be more or less sent to the head of the class for for being so cool in a, in a terrible situation. I think they realized even more later how dire the situation was in Gemini 8. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and he handled, he saved them. So, uh, you know, I think they kind of, it's, it's certainly, it means something in terms of who they're selecting later in what order. So uh, there, it, it's part of the, part of the background for later. That's, I think one of the main reasons they showed this. 
Uh, and then we transition to a, a, a brief scene where uh, Deke Sladen, who's now uh, head of the astronaut office, um, is walking with Gus Grissom while they're hunting and essentially kind of wink, wink, says to uh, Gus that we want a Mercury astronaut uh, in Apollo and possibly on the first moon landing. And then there is uh, overt discussion that Ed White and Roger Chaffee will be Grissom's uh, crew for the upcoming Apollo 1, because we're now heading towards the end of Gemini. Um, we have a, a very uh, interesting scene where we then go to uh, uh, Jim Webb on Meet the Press, mm -hmm. uh, where he, he goes so far as to boldly say that they have surpassed the Russians. And I think that this scene is most notable it's Andy Chaikin's cameo. I right. don't know if you saw yeah, that. Yeah, they give he him a plays... different, like a different Chaikin. No, no, yeah, it says Chaikin on his thing, yeah. but he he plays one of the press reporters, and right. I think that's the only time he's in the show. Right. I actually emailed Andy Chaikin once. Uh, I read one of his books, and I not not Man on the Moon. I read another one of his books, and I emailed him, and he wrote me back. So that was kind of cool. Um, I just Googled Andy Chaikin email and I found it. So that was kind of neat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we head into what is uh, essentially the finale of the episode, which is then followed by a denouement, the, the Gemini 12 scene. Um, and the liftoff of Gemini 12, all right, this is um, a Lovell is the mission commander, I believe. Um, and Buzz Aldrin is his uh, is his co-pilot. Buzz Aldrin, played by none other than Brian Cranston, uh, before Breaking right. Bad. Um, and they do the liftoff a very different way. The liftoff is shown from a suburban street to somewhere uh, on the space coast of Florida, and people see on their TV that they're taking off, and they run outside. By the way, it's and a they watch park. the ship go up. Yeah, <laughs> oh, is it a trailer park? Yeah, it's a trailer park classic. That's <laughs> The Space Coast. <laughs> um, and then this is, you know, they completely skip over, for example, they skip over um, some of the other Gemini flights. Like, they they don't show at all, for example, Gene Cernan's um, disastrous uh, spacewalk um, in Apollo, sorry, in Gemini 9, uh, where he overheats and basically doesn't accomplish um any of his goals during that mission. They also skip Mike Collins, uh, Gemini 10 uh, spacewalk as well. And then they uh, they skip Gemini 11, right? Uh, Pete Conrad and Dick Gordon, um, including another EVA by Dick Gordon. And then they go to, again, here we are, Gemini 12, final Gemini flight, Jim Lovell, Buzz Aldrin, and emphasizing that, that they have now essentially mastered uh, the techniques that they need for basic EVAs. Right. Um, and, and, and they're, they're showing that now they have handholds and footholds and they've, they've sort of learned how to work in space. And a lot of that credit has to go to Aldrin. I mean, Aldrin was one of the key people who said we have to train underwater. That was actually, uh, in part his idea. Um, and, you know, Cernan's, uh, Cernan spacewalk was such a catastrophe. Um, that it really forced them to rethink things. And, you know, you know, Cernan himself talks that he was deeply embarrassed and ashamed and felt that he had failed on his spacewalk, uh, which essentially he had. But many others have commented if Cernan hadn't had such a bad spacewalk, they wouldn't have learned what they needed to learn to have more successful EVAs afterwards. Right. 
Um, and then um, we get a mix. There's some model work in this scene, and then there's some CGI, like the final shot of Aldrin sort of straddling a la uh, Slim Pickens in the end of um, Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> He's sort of straddling the uh, Agena uh, dock to the nose of Gemini 12. Uh, that's clearly a CGI shot. Like the way his hand moves in his glove looks very artificial. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, so this was, was this was ninety eight, you know, too. So it's not. Yeah, it doesn't look bad, but right. it's, it's you know, it's a transition from what's what's been model work and practical effects earlier on to this CG shot. Yeah. Um, and then, our denouement is a very congenial uh, Deke Slayton convening uh, the the existing astronaut crews. Uh, and basically telling them that the people in the room with him are going to be the Apollo astronauts. And and there's a very nice bit where he says, you know, the first person to walk on this moon, on the moon is in this room right now and listening to my voice, which is an interesting way to put it. Right. And, but he also says, and the second and third and fourth, et cetera. So basically he says that those guys are among the chosen group that, that are going to man the Apollo missions that, involve most of the moon trips right and, and it's also i guess a way to say if you're not first it doesn't mean it's over for you there's still plenty to do there's there's plenty of work to go around right um you know we're all going to be very busy and he also implies it's going to be very hard to predict which flight is going to be the first lunar flight right what we talked about before i mean he's sort of echoing that there's going to be some wiggle room in the way things go which you know of course turned out to be true which is coming up when apollo some won. of the actors in this episode reprise their roles throughout the show uh like for example the guy who plays dave scott is in it the guy who plays frank borman returns um pete conrad again we said earlier is played in this episode by peter scolari he's not played by peter scolari later on and for example one of the later episodes that focuses very heavily on uh pete conrad uh, has a, an entirely different actor. So it's sort of interesting. Um, and But it finishes on a very, very positive tone. Like the, sh the episode begins with a lot of anxiety and fear uh, and finishes on a very positive tone. And now we are ready for Apollo, right? We, we have seen what we need to see of Mercury. We've seen some, not all, but some key and core elements of Gemini. I'm going to say it the NASA way. Um, <laughs> and then we... You know, we are about to see Apollo 1. Like, we've even been informed in this episode who the Apollo 1 crew are going to be. Right. Right, which sets us up for the second episode. Right, and sets us up for the meat of the series, essentially. I remember when I saw this, um, the, I, the only episode I actually saw live when it first came out was actually the very first one. I was at my parents' house, and they had... They had HBO, and I was only able, even though they showed two episodes back-to-back -back that night, I was only able to see one episode because I had to run to the airport. Um, and I remember being extremely impressed by this. Like, I just couldn't believe how how much effort and time they were putting into it. Yeah. And money, to be totally honest. You know, I mean... Uh, in 1995, uh, we haven't talked about this in the podcast before, but in 1995, I was lucky enough to uh, briefly live and work at Johnson Space Center. Um, 
and do some research. And I just, you know, like they kind of had the feel of sort of the NASA culture and the way people sort of looked and acted and dressed. I mean, granted, I was there way, way later than the 60s, but there was, you know, they call it, they still, when I was down there, they still talked about the spirit of Apollo, you know, almost 30 years later when I was there. Right. Um, so it was, it was just neat to see that conveyed in a television show in a serious uh, manner. Like I was excited that there were 11 more hours of this thing coming. Right. So next um, time. Did, next time, Apollo 1. Did you see this, by the way, when it first came out, or did you see it afterwards? I saw like a couple of them, but then the rest of it I watched later. And I think, you know, just to sort of take a step back, I think this is the only one that Hanks directs. He writes He writes an episode or two later on. He actually writes, well, he gets writing credit on actually a bunch of them, but this is the only one I believe that Hanks directs. Right. He's a showrunner, though, for the... Right, he's executive producer. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, look, this is a this is a, a lot for him to do in an episode. I mean, he, you know, he's... I think of all the shows, this is the broadest in tone, whereas the other episodes almost all focus on one mission or one specific aspect of Apollo, whereas he's got to do two other complete programs and all the setup in, you know, like, I think it's like 53 minutes. Just pretty impressive. Right. Um, all right. Anything else you want to cover for uh, Can We Do This? No, I think it's, you know, it's set everything up. And so we'll proceed to the uh, first Apollo. Yeah. Episode. Apollo 1, our next episode on our From the Earth to the Moon podcast. All right, Peter, should we wrap it there? Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, we'll do Apollo 1 uh, next. And don't forget to check out our other podcast, Popcorn Drink Combo. Good night. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>